to Animoa, the animated movie watch. I'm Beffers. And I'm Birdie. Today's episode is Lupin III, The Castle of Cagliostro. We pick our movies from the list of animated feature films on Wikipedia. Any movie with a theatrical release that has a critic's rating of over 50% on Rotten Tomatoes will get its own episode here on Animoa. And we're watching these films in chronological order. And we have a guest today. Ah, yay! He just wandered in. Yeah, he just had to let him in and put him on the show. <laughs> he was like, I heard you were watching this movie. <laughs> this uh, is Eric. Hello. Also known as Eric. It's just Eric. The artist formerly known as Eric. I don't know why I gestured to you. No one can see. <laughs> yeah. we, we do that sometimes. It's okay. It's okay. Eric is with us today because he knows a lot more about this movie and Lupin the Third. In general. And, and movies in general, actually. Yeah. But, that, that, you know, some, sometimes uh, it's it's useful to have a, another set of eyes and a historical kind of viewpoint here. And what a history it is, because yeah. this series has been going since 1971. So, yeah. yeah. And the last iteration came out in 2017. This is a long-running series. Man. Wasn't there a movie... Even more recent than that, though. Yes, there was a movie called Lupin the First that came out in 2019. CGI! Uh, yes, I know. It's They brought yes. themselves finally into the 21st yeah. century. I snuck a glance at a trailer just because I was like, I have to know what this looks like. It actually looks really freaking cool. Uh-huh. Like, I was blown away. Yeah. That's one of the history aspects that it comes down to with this show. Because it is a show, but it's also a movie series and an OVA series. Original animation is uh, OVA for anyone who doesn't know. Yes. And the funny thing is that since the end of the third series, which ended in the 80s, on a yearly basis, they've been doing these OVAs and with little bits of movies peppered in, just I guess maybe to keep the culture interest alive in Lupin the Third. It's a very popular series over in Japan and even has quite a following here in the United States. I am sure. a testament of that. <laughs> yes. Didn't you watch a lot of the episodes in quarantine last year? Yes, uh, it was one of those, like, I wanted to start something that had some legs to it. And I'm thinking, all right, what can I do that has a lot of history? And it's sort of, I was going through Amazon Prime and the second series popped up. And I, oh, no, I haven't seen Lupin the Third in a long time. So I started with the part one, which has no English dub, by the way. It oh. subtitles through and through. It's a 25 episode uh, series. It has a, it has, an interesting history, the first little bit. And the reason that I'm going to sort of talk about the first series is because this movie acts as a bridge between the first and the second television series. Mm. And uh, there's a reason also that our good friend uh, Miyazaki is involved with this, but we'll get to that later. Cool. The first part really is a lot like Family Guy was to, <laughs> to the United States, where it had, a, it had a following, but it really kind of petered out and got canceled. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. <laughs> you set yourself up. No, I softballed that one right in, didn't I? <laughs> oh, God. Oh. Hit me in the face. Oh, jeez. But during uh, during its initial run, it didn't have the popularity to keep it going or even to finish its first, uh, its first series. It was supposed to go a full 26, which is... Pretty typical, well, 27, I think, is pretty typical of Japanese animation. Okay. Uh, yeah. It only, only made it to 25. And two of the stories that were supposed to be for part one ended up getting put back into part two almost a decade later when part two came out. If you remember when Family Guy got canceled, it got picked up by Adult Swim on the yeah, Cartoon yeah. Network, and it blew up in popularity. Also, it was very popular on DVD. 
Yeah. And yes. it allowed them to say, hey, maybe we shouldn't have canceled this. There might be some money there. <laughs> and that's sort of what happened with Lupin the Third is after syndication of the show, because it was cheap, it was super cheap to syndicate in Japan. They built a following and the character got a lot more life. And the original comic book Oh, I should have mentioned that before. It is originally based on a manga, just like any other Japanese animation really is. Monkey Punch. Yeah, the difference between the, the manga and the animation is massive. The manga is far more brutal. The character is not likable. He does some pretty deplorable things. But you can also thank Miyazaki for changing that because yeah. he came in about episode eight or seven in the original part one and took over with another partner of his and changed it into basically the more family-friendly television-worthy show that has since become set. Mm, nice. And yeah. I think that the reason that he really wanted to see this as a bridge between part one and part two, this movie, is because part two kind of took that family-friendly, uh, well, I would say family-friendly for Japan in the 70s at the time, <laughs> but making it more accessible and understanding why the character changed from part one to part two. And he used it as sort of a vehicle to do that. And that, that's my kind of personal thoughts on the matter. Before we <laughs> head into Miyazaki and go off to Cagliostro, we should talk about what we're drinking today. Oh, yeah. We're um, all enjoying some limoncello. Some limoncello. Mm. Cheers. So, cheers. Oh, nice. wow. That's going to be... I'm going to have to... <laughs> that's going to mm. be in the red. <laughs> Selected this particular drink because of... The setting, really, honestly. Like, the whole time I was just like, I mean, not just the name Cagliostro, it's just pretty much Italian, but it looked like northern Italy. I mean, I know Limoncello more southern, but (laughs) the whole time I was just like, are we in the Alps? This is the Alps, right? Like, this is, like, Alpine Italy or, like, France or maybe Switzerland or even, like, the castle itself was kind of Bavarian looking. Mm -hmm. Like, it was just, I liked how it was just sort of this generic... Yeah. fantasy kind of lens of Europe oh, where it didn't really quite feel real but it also was grounded. The anime generic European. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's all just Europe. <laughs> but yeah, no, no. It still felt like it could have been like a real um, what it, was it? Sovereign state? This this made up location? And I, I love seeing that in, in, uh, when, when they come up with like fictional countries or places where it's like eh, it doesn't have to be real instead of like actually calling out like real political things that might have been going on at the time or something, just make up a nice fictional setting so we could just set it there and not maybe upset the apple cart. (laughs) Yeah, in the 70s, who knows? I don't know enough 70s history to Um, guess where every country was. Cold War stuff? I mean, you're going to get a lot of that. What it reminds me of, and this is something that I just wanted to bring up at all, just having to do with like the tone of this. Like, I've had no exposure to Lupin. (laughs) <laughs> at all like this is a completely new character to me um yeah n- neither of us knew anything and thank you eric for like uh, before we watched just like talking about it and kind of setting the stage for us and explaining what these characters were watching it and immersing myself in it i was like oh my god this reminds me of tintin so much huh. so so much because it's like an adventure story you've got like this protagonist who Mm, has like these colorful cast of characters around him and, and that bearded like, sidekick the bearded sidekick <laughs> um who's kind of rough around the edges but also kind of lovable which I, he might not be like that in another um Jigen, of course we're referring to i don't know how he is in other uh, adaptations of this i guess i don't know the, the characterizations of 
Mm-hmm. Jigen, Goemon, and Lupin, and Pujiko for, for a little bit. I mean, yeah. she got a little bit of a change, but we'll, again, we'll talk about yeah, characterization yeah. later. Yeah. But all the characters, the main, the core three characters, are pretty spot on, yeah. with a few exceptions. Even compared to how it was, how the first part was changed away from the comic book to the television screen, the, there was still a little bit of a grit that mm-hmm. that was in the television show in the early seventies. And when this movie was made, part two had already almost finished its run. And so the character had a little bit different thing going for it. So I think that the choice to have Lupin be a little bit more like his part two counterpart instead of his part one counterpart. Again, uh, going back to the idea that this was a bridge, Mm -hmm. that this is him later in his career as as a thief. A little more subtle. He's calmed down. He's not so determined by his emotions mm-hmm. that he is he is well within his his uh his abilities a little more mature yeah and that sort of goes into part two where he is always cool always not, and the only thing that can get under his skin is fujiko okay yeah i can see that That's yeah, awesome. now that you pointed it out he did seem seem really cool and not cool as in oh he's so cool but cool as in calm yeah and confident of his abilities but he also had that boyishness that mm-hmm. a lot of protagonists do mm-hmm. yeah but going back to the the weird tintin vibe i was getting the whole time just because it was like you know an old adventure story is based off of a comic you know and tintin was a long-running comic beloved in europe incidentally so it's like there's that kind of weird parallel again Hergé, like the kind of thing where he would make up countries and put and send Tintin off to them and he would just sort of make them up and sort of like, yeah, this is an analog to this country and we're going to pull this thing from history, but we're not actually going to ascribe that to like real life things that are happening. And it just felt like that. It felt like like that in Indiana Jones a little bit. There was like that, again, old serials, adventure, adventure story, treasure. I mean, it was just so much fun. The action sequences, it's like, James Bond meets Tintin as interpreted by Japan. It's like kind of how I felt about it and how I Steven Spielberg it. is on record stating stating that this movie is an influence to him. Oh, cool. So, okay then. Granted, <laughs> Steven Spielberg did not write Indiana Jones. That was George Lucas, but you can see little bits and pieces. But also, I mean, this was really big with the animators in the United States when it came out. They had a screening at Disney. Oh. Lasseter loves this movie. Not surprised. And you see bits and pieces of this movie in Pixar all over the place. Cool. I can yeah. I can definitely see that and like like some of the action sequences and the pacing and like the kind of blend of action and humor and stuff. Something that jumped out to me as probably an homage. The freaking clock tower sequence is like, uh, is this the great mouse detective? Is is the Count Radigan? Like, what the hell? He just shows up and they're fighting on this fucking... <laughs> and who was the animation director for The Great Mouse Detective? Oh, no. Uh, that would be John Lasseter. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought it was... Um... Maybe he wasn't the animation no, no, no. director. No, no, no. It was... Uh, that was, uh, you know, the same uh, duo who was responsible for The Little Mermaid a couple years later. Why am I... Musker Clement? Something like no, that. No, you're right. The Lasseter, Lasseter was involved. I'm sure he was involved. Yeah, he was Absolutely. involved. I'm, he was still I'm I'm around him, at the time. I'm giving him a little too much credit than he needs to. That's my bad. More than he deserves. Yeah, so. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> now, your, your opinions on John Lasseter aside. <laughs> yes. Okay, then. Um, anyway, absolutely. was just like that. I saw the great mass detective in it. I saw a lot of, like, again, yeah, the Indiana Jones sort of vibe of some kind of absurd action sequences where it's, like, almost over the top. But yeah. 
I mean, there are quite yeah. a few of those. Yeah. <laughs> the car just driving up the side. <laughs> yeah, that tiny little Fiat. Speaking mm-hmm. of which, that Fiat, with that was the first introduction of that car within the series. It, it's because Miyazaki owned one. It's a 1957 Aww. Fiat. 500 and it has all of 12 horsepower <laughs> so Aww. so uh, keeping up with the cars at the time um, yeah it must have had a little bit of uh, work done to it <laughs> yeah probably it's also Just a very very small car so how Jigen fits a, an anti-tank gun into it is beyond me <laughs> it's a clown car yeah. is that it <laughs> they, they do all fit in it somehow <laughs> <laughs> so are all of the episodes as action-packed as this movie? Yes and no. The, the episodes range from being very James Bond-ish to where there's, there's gadget-heavy episodes, there's action-heavy episodes, and there's some drama-based episodes. Okay. Uh, in, in one of the part one series, uh, the, the nemesis of Lupin III, uh, Inspector Zenigata, captures him. And has him in jail for the entire episode. Oh. And it's just this long con to get him out, but also to draw, drive as in, as in he got him mad. Oh, that sounds so fun. It's a slow burn episode. It has very little action, but the payoff is, a bit, is, of course, just the best. Cool. Amazing. I think I would compare this more to Cowboy Bebop. Because you have a, like a, a skinny little action-packed <laughs> hero. Another yeah. bearded sidekick. Yeah. I can see some. Uh, Faye is... Fujiko, yeah, a little bit of that. Watanabe is a huge fan of Lupin the Third, okay. and if you look at Spike, Jet, Faye, they are very much yeah. just a mirror image of, of characters from Lupin the Third. Oh, like okay. you showed us the uh, the the opening sequence for the the TV show, the second part, mm-hmm. and like the whole time I was just like, what if we just set Cowboy Bebop music to this? Like, what would it, <laughs> what would that be like? Because I'm feeling it. <laughs> Yes. Also, speaking of the soundtrack, the funky jazz of uh, Lupin the Third mm-hmm. is well well represented in this movie, mm-hmm. and it's it's something that's been kind of a mainstay from part two on. It is very very integral to the to the plots, and it's it, you want they want they want the action to have this great sort of bumping drum funky soundtrack, and they it's great. It, it suits really it. It suits it very well. I have to say, it was odd to be watching something so Miyazaki coded. And not hear Joe Hisaishi's music, though. <laughs> I think this is the only film that they didn't work on together. Like, like the only Miyazaki film that doesn't have a Joe Hisaishi soundtrack, which is like, oh, man, I love his shit. But that's okay, because, it, again, it does fit on the bad third, like, to have the jazzy awesomeness. Now, also, this is also, I think, the only movie that Miyazaki made that wasn't his original material. And it also... Well, no. Um, House Movie well, Castle, but... Howl's wasn't his? No. That was based off of um, a fantasy book. Mm. He must have had a pretty heavy hand in it then. Yeah, he changed a lot. Yeah. And yeah. actually, I just didn't love it in general. I didn't even know the book. Well, the production of this movie is is a little on the strange side. For as polished and good as it really turned out to be, its production cycle was extremely short. Mm. They wanted to get it out, and the time between production and and release was some it was amazingly small time. I think it was like four months or something like that. They did a huge mm-hmm. amount of pre-production. Once they hit, they hit the ground running. And Miyazaki's been on record stating that it just wasn't enough time to have the vision that he wanted. Oh, and that might yeah. actually be a little bit on why he is so heavy-handed into the works he does since, oh. because he's thinking, all right, I just don't want it to turn out like Lupin did. Because it's not a bad movie, but I think he was may have been disappointed with not being the vision that he envisioned it to be. Sure. Okay. You know what? 
I can see that. Well, it's hard to do whatever you want with a character that's already established. Mm-hmm. That is true, but it is also kind of a, his baby. His he, he, he had directed fun. most of the first part, and yeah. he had he had done I believe two episodes in part two. And if you look, if you go back and watch them, I think it was like episode one forty five, one fifty five. Mm-hmm. Yes, he did the very last episode. It's one hundred and fifty five episodes in the second part. It's a oh, long yeah. run. See, this is why we have you here because yeah. if you don't know, you have those numbers. Yeah. But if you watch those episodes, it looks like the character design from Castle Castle Castleogo. Did you just say Castle? Castle? I can't. No, you see, I don't. I can't. I can't say the name in its proper Italian. I pronounce the G. And so it's cast, cast, Cagliostro. Cagliostro. Yeah. Um, should we talk some more about Miyazaki? Because we all love Miyazaki. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the thing that I really noticed were the backgrounds. Just yes. every time it had any kind of background art, I was like, that is so Miyazaki. Yep. His totally. infamous sprawling watercolor backgrounds and like the. I noticed it immediately with like uh, just driving in the car and like the car sitting there and like the, the there's like a field with flowers and stuff. But when it was really like, oh God, here we go, it's Miyazaki, was when they pulled up to the abandoned castle that was overgrown with shit. He sure loves his abandoned buildings that are <laughs> overgrown with shit. They're so pretty. He loves when nature just takes over man made objects and things. Like, it, Every single one of his movies has that in there somewhere. And it was just so beautiful to see that. I'm like, oh, this is where he, this, he started here. This is where it all began. Aww. What about you? What stood out as the most Miyazaki? Oh, landscapes. I yeah. that one the one that always gets me is is there's this scene where they show a field and it's it's at, a, at an angle, so it's a kind of a, a rolling hill, and you see that whoosh across of the shadow yeah. of the wind. And that's just, yep. that is so Miyazaki that just hurts, but hurts in a good way. Because, of course, it's amazing. Also, the pauses. Yes. yes. Miyazaki loves these long pauses where you get to see the art. And because he, I think he has a real good idea that it is a visual medium. And there's one thing that kind of gets lost, especially in American uh, animation, is that it always has to be sound movement, and you don't really get to take in the art as well. Yeah. Yeah. And Miyazaki is like, no, we're doing the exact opposite. We worked hard on this. We're going to make you look at it and love it. We do. He has a really good sense of pacing. Yep. Even if it's not still, even if it's like something humorous, it's it's just well put together. Mm Mm-hmm. Always. He does something really great with like character moments and beats where they're doing something, but it's not always necessarily like a necessary thing, but something that also makes sense in the moment. Like I, I'm trying to think of an example from this film, but I can maybe think of yeah. one. I forget his name. The bearded guy. Jigen. Uh, Jigen. Yeah. Um, so Lupin is sitting in like in that lake with that mm-hmm. little, what is it called? It's, it's like a gazebo? gazebo. Yeah. Gazebo. It's a gazebo. Yeah. And his friend walks up, and I can't describe the movements he made. I didn't completely understand it myself, but I don't know. They, they have a moment of silence between them. Down, but, yeah, man, I wish I could just see it again. I know. I, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, right? I do. I do. It's and some kind of nonverbal communication. It's it's yeah. funny and endearing at yeah. the same yes. time. Yeah, that's right after they got done with the car chase, and Lupin has recognized. Yes, uh, he's back yeah. here, and Clarice and. Again, with like the the emphasis on the backgrounds and on that those pauses that you were talking about, like he takes his time walking through and 
or like following his footsteps almost like like as he's his stepping stones as yeah. he went across the light like it's so just measured and calm and beautiful i love this shit even simple things you think about when he's when he's initially trying to get across to the to the keep where the where the princess is being held yes when he's when he, that scene where he's climbing the wall climbing the roof measuring and then things go wrong yep. that scene is a lot longer than you would expect it to be yes. he slips a few times he drops the, he drops that, a few things that is exactly what i meant when i was referring to like character animations and beats and things that like don't necessarily like maybe they're not necessary but they make it feel a little bit more real and complete mm-hmm. like as he's like fumbling with those the, the what is it like a firecracker or something a rocket the rocket yeah and like it's like sliding down and he's like trying to get it and he's like Got the string in his mouth and everything, and the fiddling with a lighter, and just every single little thing that happens. It's like, I, I was on the edge of my seat during that. <laughs> yeah. Like all the other action sequences, I was like, oh, haha, look at what's happening. But that part, he's up on the freaking roof. Yeah. The slope is like straight down. And the bit where he runs down at like uncontrollable speed is something that happens again much later in Spirited Away. When Chihiro's running down the stairs at the bathhouse, she has like completely no control over her momentum. She's just running and screaming down. She runs into a wall. He gets to leap across and uh, land on what's her face's window, basically. What's her name? Oh, um, Clarice. Clarice. There yes. we go. Okay. I miss, always was waiting for the, the Silence of the Lambs reference. Hello, yeah. Clarice. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I do remember that now. I just think of her as Nausicaa because she just kind of looks like Nausicaa. <laughs> And the Count looks like, um, I had to look up his name, but I was like, it's the sidekick. It's the, what's his face? It's Kurotoa from uh, Nausicaa. Mm-hmm. Who's um, like the, the right-hand man of the, I don't know, she's got one arm. She's really cool. She's the bad guy in Nausicaa. <laughs> Can't remember her name either. Dang it. But yeah, they have like the same kind of square-shaped face with like a really, really wide mouth and these smarmy lips. <laughs> Speaking of action sequences, how about that part where Lupin is in the water and he starts going downstream, which mm. he doesn't want to? He takes forever to swim up and he doesn't make it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was giggling to myself because of the way he was animated. It was ridiculous, but it was <laughs> suspenseful at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And like, so it was his leap across the rooftops. Like, that's ridiculous. You can't do that. But it was still just like, oh my God! He did ballet! <laughs> <laughs> I think there's enough grounded in real, realism that it doesn't take you out of it, but it's still an animated movie yeah. about, a, about a, ga- a really gangly character. So yeah. you have to have a little bit of Bugs Bunny in there. Yes. Well, there was like some pure Bugs Bunny with um, the trap door sequence with like the bus. Yeah, they're like, like scrambling in the air before they fall. Well, it's a good thing he wasn't Wiley Coyote. <laughs> <laughs> Another Miyazaki thing that I know you, I believe you mentioned earlier on, was the uh, the flying machine. Yes. Yeah. As soon as I saw it, I was like, "We're going to have a flying sequence later, aren't we?" I bet it's going to be during the climax of the movie. They're all going to get on that plane thing, <laughs> and they did. I was so vindicated. And you pointed out, Eric, the the food sequence when he's just stuffing his face. Yeah. Miyazaki does enjoy animating his characters stuffing their faces. <laughs> Oh, man. So, yeah, yeah, no, a lot of stuff. And just, yeah, the designs of the characters in general, as I mentioned, like the, the one who looked like Nausicaa, the one that looked like Kuratoa, Kuratoa and um, even uh, Lupa himself, like, he's got, like, the kind of goofy eyes a lot of the time, and, like, I'm sure that's, like, probably what he looks like more traditionally, 
And then sometimes he just sort of shifts into Miyazaki style. <laughs> it's a little funny. Because Miyazaki just kind of goes, mm. <laughs> like, I now look like a Miyazaki character. But that's in, okay. In a way, it's, it's a combination of both. Mm. Because you think about television animation, it's fast, it's dirty, they have to get it done and get it out. So there's corners cut. If yeah. you watch if you watch the first few series, everyone's bow-legged. They can't really, they don't, they don't want to bend, do knee, bend, uh, knee bends for some reason. I don't know why. Um, oh but, God. of course, Miyazaki's not going to do that. There's this, there's a great vaulting scene right at the beginning before they, you even see the credits when they're robbing Monica. That's right. But I think that of all the characters who kind of kept their traditional look more than anybody, Jigen, Jigen really looks like I remember him, with the exception of, of course, the bowlegs in, yeah. in the television show. But you're not wrong about Lupin, because Lupin, he's, his features are far more uh, softer in the mm -hmm. Miyazaki version. He has a much more pronounced chin in, okay. the, in the television. And the eyes, the, the non-Miyazaki eyes, don't go away. He is always has a sort of shifty look <laughs> or a surprised look the on his face. The eyes almost. Yeah. yeah. I like it. Yeah, it's, it's a fun style. Like, holy crap. And then comparing uh, characters, how they looked in the, the show versus this movie... Obviously, Fujiko changed. Fujiko changed massively. Fujiko is not a blonde. <laughs> Granted, it's it's hard to say because Fujiko throughout the series does go through many disguises mm. and does change her hair color, but she almost always goes back to her being a brunette. And she's a very, if you look at her from even from part one out to 2019, her style really hasn't changed all that much. She has long brown hair she is a very very petite except in the chest region mm -hmm. um which she uses to her advantage in a way she's kind of a foil to lupon she's the only character who can really get under lupon's skin yeah. and she's not always on his side he she'll she's on her she's on her own yeah. wavelength and she's honestly smarter better than him yeah. in every single way of, of being a thief and she's far more of a wild card and, and far more fun to watch especially mm -hmm. in the television series Got it. I yeah. did like how she helped him out throughout the movie. Yeah. Like, she was just sort of there. And, like, you know, she was doing her own thing. Yeah. But, like, whenever she came across him, it was just sort of like this this friendly rivalry. But, yeah, she was going to help in the end. Yeah. And she is not afraid to shoot someone in the face. Holy <laughs> shit, was she not? That sequence during, that, the during the wedding, basically, when she's pretending to be a newscaster and just... Fucking everybody up while she's still reporting. Like she's mid, like like oh wow, now this is happening. Whips around, shoots somebody in the face behind her, like to save the cameraman, and then just goes right back to. Oh my god! You know what? It occurred to me that we never really outlined the plot. You know what? We didn't, and I know we do that usually with the somewhat unfamiliar movies. Um, so basically, Lupin saves a runaway bride who ends up being the princess of Cagliostro. He's supposed to marry an evil count who's going to do some weird magic thing. Oh, they've got, like, these two rings. They're, like, the light and the dark of Cagliostro, their families or whatever, and they're going to unite them, and there's supposedly some sort of treasure that's going to be revealed if you do something with the rings. Mm -hmm. It's a mystery that could have been solved if, like, she just told him what the words were. Like, I guess her family knew these words all along, but they were, like, on the rings when you combined them. Wonder twin powers Wonder activate, twin I guess. Powers. I don't know. But he did need both rings to put him to the goat. That's on true. The clock tower to make the actual thing yeah. happen. That's right. That's However, right. It, it in itself is a is an elaborate uh, trap, but I won't spoil 
why it's an elaborate trap. I guess oh, we do spoil. Oh, it's okay. Yeah. Uh, sh- long story short, uh, the two rings cause a one of two memorable uh, squishes within the clock oh. tower sequences. <laughs> oh, okay. uh, there were two of those, weren't there? <laughs> yeah, uh, they don't show them all but from a distance and from off screen, but uh, yeah, two people get caught up in the works of clock towers and uh, just use your imagination on how they come out the other end. Oh, God. Like, the first one caught me off guard and is like one of those visceral things that really, like, genuinely freaks me out is imagining getting stuck in machinery. Oh. That scares me. Like, legit scares me. The, the one with the hands, what happens to the count, was actually funny it to was. me. Especially the sound that it makes. Like, <laughs> it's a little tiny. <laughs> I think the pause before it happens, too, because you know it's just like, it's coming, it's coming. It had the same surprise element as um, the evil guy in Wizards getting shot. <gasps> yeah, a little bit. It was like, fuck, that just happened. All right, then. <laughs> Okay, moving on. <laughs> anyway, but yes. And then, obviously, yes, the, the, the dam basically explodes outward and uh, drains the lake, which reveals a Roman city, an ancient Roman city that's been buried underneath the lake. And apparently that's a treasure for all mankind. That would be awesome. It's, sure, if there's stuff there to research, I guess. I don't well, know. they have the entire layout of the city, and it's it looks pretty much intact. It's pretty reserved, and yeah, that's yeah. useful. Okay. The, the treasures that Lupin goes after in the television show are kind of in tune with this. He's, okay. he's not really a bank robber or or a person who's going after cash in the sense that he's going to use it to just hoard. He he likes he likes gold bars. He likes mm-hmm. he likes uh, artifacts. He, in a way, he's a little bit like. Indiana Jones was in, in Temple of Doom. He's kind of getting treasures to sell to the, ne- to the next guy. Mm-hmm. And throughout the series, he does, usually in the course of trying to find a treasure, come across someone who's doing things a lot worse and ends up stopping them and leaving them for Zanigata. He's not, he's not a bad okay. character. He's actually very honorable. He's a gentleman thief. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. And it's really part of his character structure that he finds things that aren't typically what they seem. But he still, in the end, gets something that he wants out of it. And sometimes that's all just getting away from Zenigata. Because that is <laughs> half the fun for him is outwitting Zenigata. Mm-hmm. It's the Messing thrill. with pops. <laughs> it's, that, it's, that thrill of the, it's that thrill of the chase and thrill of the hunt sure. that he craves. Not necessarily the money that comes along with it. That said, I really liked how they end up having to work together. And how often does that happen in the show? Does it that... happens from time to time. It's, okay. There is a... There are a few tropes that are present between him and Zenigata that are well represented in this movie. Mm-hmm. One of Lupin's favorite things to do is to dress up as Zenigata to ah, confuse people. It. That is, it has a long storied history in this movie. I has a great it. version of it. Yeah, I noticed uh, when Zenigata was talking to the head of the guard, and the mm-hmm. guard was like, "No, you're not authorized to be in this party. Go away." Yeah, and then. Lupin, dressed as Zenigata, comes up and he's like, what do you mean you let him get away? That was Lupin in disguise. Same thing happens in this girl, for now. And I was like, yay, the old trick still works. That's (laughs) fantastic. Oh, I love it. It's a good trick. It is. (laughs) Especially against feeble-minded guards. Yeah. (laughs) I must prove myself. I capture him. (laughs) In In a way, Zenigata knows that Lupin is not a violent person and not a not a person who does things just out of spite. There's there's several episodes within the show where he he contradicts what people think 
Lupin's doing because it's not his style. Mm. And he's he's generally right. Zenigata is he kind of floats the line between bumbling and extremely competent. And he'll and he'll go back and forth in within within minutes within, within the episode <laughs> sometimes. And you kind of feel like one of these days, like you kind of want him to catch Lupin once just so he has a win because he's actually yeah. a really likable character. He is. He really is. I was like, I, I loved again them working together, and then also him getting the vindication of actually like publicizing this um, counterfeiting oper- operation. Just be like, oh no, look what I just discovered. Wow, whatever am I going to do? Like, <laughs> So fucking funny. It should be established that that's a part of the plot as well, because we didn't cover that. The reason that they're in this movie and after this castle in the first place is it's the source of what they call a gothic bill, which is an extremely well-counterfeited bill. And it's a, it's part of the the entire kingdom's legacy, and it's part of the reasons the dark side and the light side. Yeah. But yeah, that's behind it. Yes, of course. Um, and it's another reason why it makes me think of Tintin, because there's a counterfeiting operation in one of those adventures as well. So there's also a castle one, and, and it's just like everything felt like it's all fitting together, but it's all different parts. <laughs> it was so, that was so much fun to me. I don't know. Um, you know, the only time I really felt for Zenigata was after he had just gotten kind of fired by Interpol. And then it shows him, like, I don't know, hours later oh. or the next day, he's like slumped at his desk. And the phone rings, and he's, like, trying to scoot the phone closer to him with his foot. Yeah. <laughs> There's, like, so many spent cigarettes and, like, a, like some bottles of booze that are upended. And his, his cheeks are kind of flushed, so you know he's, like, either drunk or hungover. <laughs> Poor guy. I fucking love him. I love him. And he's been chasing Lupin for the better part of ten years at this point. If you, if you go by chronologically... With, uh, with with what part of the series it goes with. I should also mention that the, the series themselves, one through five, are broken up by the jacket that he wears. Ah, oh, yes. Yes. The, the part one, he wears a green jacket. Part two, he wears a red jacket. Part three, he wears a pink jacket. Mm-hmm. And part four and five, he wears a blue jacket. This one is both sort of the, it's a green jacket, but it's kind of the last little bit of, and I think this is why Miyazaki was using it as a, as a bridge between green and red, is because it has his personality traits from part two, but sort of him lamenting that he's been doing this for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And, and he was, he was a greenhorn at one point in time and <laughs> contemplating, yeah, it's like, what else can I do? I just go after the biggest thing I can possibly think of. The one that beat me when I was younger. It's good stuff. Hmm. Um, other characters of note. Uh, I mean, if we want to just say like who our favorite characters sure. were, uh, almost everyone. Oh. Um, I, I really, really love the characters in this. I found Jigen and Fujiko probably, and Senegata were probably top notch. I fucking love those characters. Uh, Jigen just because like I, I love sidekick characters. <laughs> oh, adorable. <Is> <laughs> I'm trying to hold it in. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, please end the sentence. I couldn't make it. Anyway, um, yeah, I love sidekick characters and um, characters whose eyes you don't see. That's just like a weird thing that I do like. You see his eyes maybe like twice in the movie, I want to say. Like just like one eyeball kind of poking out from underneath that hat. His design, his personality, the fact that he's a, just always ready to shoot things. <laughs> just like what a fun character. Fujiko because she's a fucking badass. Yep. Just like stripping, and she's got her camo underneath, and just <laughs> lobbing grenades at people. And again, the, the bit that I described with the the news reporting part, so good. And her motorcycle's pretty cool. 
Yeah. Um, and then the part where she just like leaps off and is like peace and like has this bat wing thing and she just glides off into the forest <laughs> and is like okay bye. Is, is she Batman? Could she be? Is she Red Batman? Red Batman. <laughs> Red Japanese blonde Batman. Yeah. <laughs> I smell a fanfic <laughs> um, crossover. <laughs> um, and then Zenigata, just because uh, I don't know why. I really, really liked that character. I, 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 <laughs> it's antagonist, but not really kind of yeah. character. It's always fun. And the past time, you know. He's fine. He's fine. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm never usually like, yeah, main character, I love them. Usually it's like, I like all these side characters. Who surround the main character and support them. What about your favorite in this movie or others? In this movie, I'm in agreement with Birdie on this one. The only thing that I might see a little bit different is I'm so used to Fujiko being a different person and a different personality. She has shades of who she is. Mm -hmm. Uh, Especially the fact that she sort of pieces out at the end. (laughs) There's a lot of times where Lupin doesn't get the treasure he's after. He gets a treasure, but he doesn't get the treasure he's after. Does she get it? And she usually gets it because she, again, she is smarter and better than him in most every way. And again, she uses her feminine wiles against him at every opportunity she can. And she doesn't really do that in this movie, which is okay because Miyazaki really didn't build that into the series very much. That showed up much more prominently in part two instead of of the original part one. Uh, She's much more in part one, almost like a a competing thief in some cases, who occasionally teams up and occasionally betrays. He kind of, you know, she does her own thing. Like Catwoman. Yeah. yeah. I like Jigen because Jigen really is kind of the the character that Lupin can trust to have his back yeah. and to be able to read his thoughts on what he needs done at any specific moment. <laughs> and that's very in line with the television program, especially part one, because in part one, it was only Jigen, uh-huh. which brings me to my biggest disappointment in this movie is how they portray Goemon, who go and the reason I, I that your reaction is perfect because he kind of is just there. He doesn't really do all that much. He's the samurai, right? He yeah. is the samurai. He he's very introspective. Says a lot of things like, but he kind of says something that has something to do with whatever's going on. They'll say I was saying I'm very much a Confucius say mm-hmm. if I if I want to be a little bit uh, you know politically incorrect there. Um, I know what you're referring yeah. to. But in the television show, in pretty much all the television show, he's very important. He's a villain. He's a villain originally that sort of they have a begrudging respect to, uh, uh, towards and they become partners. Mm-hmm. Uh, in part two, he's one of the guys. He, uh, he's also, it's a trio and not a, and a duo. Yeah. But in this movie, it's kind of, it really, really focuses in on Lupin and mm-hmm. not... Goimon or Jigen, but Jigen definitely does more in this movie than, than Goimon does. Yeah, I could sense that there could be a lot more to Goimon. Like, like I probably would like the character a lot if I were watching the TV series or something. It's just, he didn't really have a whole lot to do in this movie. He just kind of shows up more than halfway through, right? Like, it's pretty late when he actually just appears, and then he doesn't really do anything. He's just yeah. there with uh, Jigen, who already had plenty to do up to that point. And so it's just sort of they get cast aside almost. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, Goemon is my favorite in this movie, just <laughs> having not seen him in the series. Because he seemed like a, a samurai trope to me. Mm-hmm. Like he was very soft-spoken and disciplined and 
Yeah, he didn't do much of anything, except when fighting happened, and all he had to do was, like, slightly pull out his sword, and everyone died around him. <laughs> that's, that's a fun trope, too, where it's like, <laughs> That is also a character trait of his. Uh, his sword, apparently, is... He is something like the ninth in his line in, in, in naming. He is the ninth Jigen. No, sorry, no, the ninth Goemon, sorry. The ninth Goemon. And his sword is one of the, is fabled to be able to cut through anything. So he, mm. in, the, in the show... He does crazy in things that couldn't be done with a sword. If you look at the beginning of uh, in the opening credits of part two, he cuts a plane in half. Oh, cool! And, oh, yeah, that's right. And during the show, he does things like that. He can he, he can use a sword and he can and he can disrobe people with it without them knowing. <laughs> I can totally see a Japanese audience just laughing at this trope that is part of their history. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and like appreciating it and laughing at it at the same time. He is very much the uh, the spiritual guidance of the of the trio. Yeah, sure. Where Jigen's the straight man, and Lupin's the one who is he's the leader, but also all over the place. Mm-hmm. So he needs these two to help ground. He's the one who gets into trouble. Jigen's the one who gets him out of trouble, and Goemon's there to probably mm-hmm. face him off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but Goemon is very capable as well. He is okay. he is far more. He has some great individual episodes within, especially this part two where he deals with his past and other clans within the Japanese because okay. he, and he's he's a far more fleshed out but he's also a little bit more of a violent and uh, and quick to anger character in the show. Sure. He has his introspection but once he once you you know you get past the line you don't want to be around him. It's an interesting concept of samurai thief. <laughs> yeah. It yeah. makes me want to watch the show. It's not too late. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> We're still basically in quarantine. (laughs) (laughs) So, Birdie, do you have any interesting notes that we haven't touched on yet? Um, I mean, none of us have mentioned Carl. Oh, Carl! (laughs) (laughs) He's like a a fat Labrador. He's like a boar hound, almost. Like, it makes me think of Fang from Harry Potter. Almost a Newfie. Yeah, kind of Newfie-like. Yeah. But he should have had a bigger boof. They, the, the dog that they had doing like the, the barking sound was just kind of like, bark bark and it should be like Bluff. <laughs> but it was so cute so cute I loved him with the uh, young Clarice when they they in that that flashback sequence and uh, the music in that sequence actually that just reminded me there's a theme that gets repeated throughout the movie and it's I guess probably the main theme other than obviously the actual like jazzy shit that goes on um, and I want to say it's the same thing that is used for the opening song. Yes. Okay. It's a variation on it, but okay. It's used absolutely as a theme. It's very much like it's a great theme. It's a it's a very Bond esque trope. You yeah. think about where it's the opening the opening song is used as a, as a musical motif. Yep. Where the James Bond theme is very much like the Lupin theme, where you'll yes. get bits and pieces of it. Exactly. Yeah. Structurally, uh, very similar. And yeah, I really did like the that theme. Like it was stuck in my head the rest of the night. I was like singing it. <laughs> Other than Carl, I don't know. Uh. Cool designs of the guards with their weird, um, oh, the I shadows. Love, I love those. What are they called? Yeah. I think they were shadows. Yeah, with those those creepy fingers. And then there's jo- Jodot, I guess, was the, the creepy butler dude who looked like the epitome of a creepy butler dude. Like, like Igor? I, butler yeah. Igor. Yeah, Butler Igor. It was ridiculous. <laughs> and it um, always seems to fail. Yeah. And apologize for yeah, it. Yeah, he's like, oh, I'm so sorry, Siri, every time. Um, and they were also like, <laughs> I call them literal frogmen. Like, the, 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 I was like, what the hell? They even, they're, they're webbed and everything. And I do like 
I think Goemon slices off masks at some point when you actually see underneath like the shadows creepy faces because they look so inhuman and then it's just the masks come off and they're just like oh they're just dudes yeah just a bunch of dudes <laughs> not intimidating at all dudes who never learn how to stand up straight yeah they're all hunched over all the time <laughs> all their mothers are disappointed in them <laughs> god they're freaky fingers uh and then i really enjoyed the uh the sequence where he uh Lupin shows up in uh clarice's quarters and is basically convincing her that he's gonna come take her away and um mm-hmm. does the little flower trick and then the flags and everything and it was it was like they were like <laughs> you're like 10 seconds of you like what's he doing honey i don't think your magic tricks are supposed to hurt <laughs> yeah. don't hurt yourself man yeah just lots of little things like that uh miyazaki cape action we got some cool capes <laughs> we also got a really weird looking helmet from the count's wedding yeah, I don't know why he was wearing that for. That was weird. Stupid hat. Glad when uh, got knocked off in the clock tower scene. Anyway, good action sequences. My God. You know what? This chef kiss to this movie all the way around. Yeah. I loved it. I was sold at the beginning, uh, right after Lupin, Lupin? Lupin. Lupin. had uh, run away from the casino after robbing it. And all the guys who were going after him had trouble with their cars. And I was sitting there like, I don't know what the hell happened to their cars, but this is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's it's, it's one, so much fun. There were like at least ten cars, one after the other. Like one was somehow completely cut in half and like they still managed to start it and like enough so that the car like pulled itself apart while they were driving it. It's ridiculous. I love it. I also liked um, the battle in the clock tower mm. with all the gears, Lupin was making all these funny noises. Yes. <laughs> like he was doing a voiceover for a video game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. It's cute. The only thing I can really add is I have, I love this movie. And I <laughs> it's one of the it was one of the first introductions to Japanese animation that I ever had. Not just Miyazaki, but in general. So I remember seeing it in the early 90s. I can't remember exactly how. I think it was a rental mm-hmm. because it had a small theatrical release in the early 90s here in the United States the, for the dubbed version. And I remember watching it and being just completely taken in on how fun it was. Mm-hmm. And it opened up an idea of what this character was. And then, of course, in the 2000s, the Adult Swim got a hold of the second series. And I think they produced something about... 70 or some so odd episodes of okay. the dubbed version and over that time i went back and watched the first through at that point in time the third because there was no part four and part five mm-hmm. and i found out that there was all these yearly ovas and movies so if you like movies with lupin the third <laughs> pretty much <laughs> post 1986 or something there's one every year it's 24 oh, 25 of them uh and they're all and they have some crossovers with other shows and they're very tight within story structure. You're not going to have to watch one to watch another to watch another. They are closed in stories. But I will say that this movie is, as far as I'm concerned, everything that I've seen, by and far, the best one that there is. Cool. Miyazaki didn't work on any of the other movies, did he? No. He, he worked on, he worked on part one and part one for most of the, most of the series, about, again, about episode eight to the end. Two episodes of part two, this movie, and he may have had, there was a, a movie before this one, but it was only in Japan and it wasn't theatrical. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the Fuma Conspiracy, I think it was what it was called. It was also a green jacket 
uh, green jacket Lupin. I don't think he had a part in that, and it, or, or unless if he did, it was it wasn't as creative as this one because it does it's not animated like a Miyazaki film. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess. Well, I don't know if the 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 more recent if there's going to be other theatrically released Lupin movies. I Would the don't. 2019 one count? I don't know if that was theatrical. I don't think it was theatrical. Okay. Well, we'll find out, but for sure we will have Miyazaki films. To look oh, yeah. To. I'm pretty sure every single Miyazaki film ever is going to be in our podcast. Yay! To begin. Yes. I'm so excited. And also, is this it? Are we moving on to the 80s? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Oh, we've been counting down to this moment for so long. And what a movie. What a, yeah, what a way to go out. Yeah, it's a great segue into the 80s. Fantastic. Yeah, it feels like it's the beginning of a new, a dawn of a new era that I'm going to love. Yes. I love the 80s. (laughs) But yes, so I guess on that note, um... Let's 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 first of all thank you, Eric. Thank you, thank you for, for joining us. us. Thank you and for having me. I'm glad yeah, I could help. Absolutely, you 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 told us so many things we did not know, <laughs> and that our listeners probably didn't know. And then, uh, Beffers, why don't you tell us what we have on the agenda for next time? It's an old French movie called The King and the Mockingbird. That's only one of its titles. Okay, well, that was unexpected. I was, yes. I was like, well, it's all right. Let's do, it's time for the 80s. Let's do something familiar. Something I've never heard of before in my life. Okay. Yeah, uh, it was really, well, this version was released in 1980, but it's older than you think. And you'll have to tune into our next episode to hear all about that. I don't even know. I guess I'll have to listen. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, that's it then. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye. Castle of Castleogo. Did you say Castle? Castleogo. Castle- 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 I can't. No. You see, I don't. I can't. I can't say the name in its proper Italian. I pronounce the G, and so it's Cast Cast Cagliostro. Cast- 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 Cast-